Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. It's the whole chapter. And so feel free to follow along with me. Acts 12, 1 through 25. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then when he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. Amen.
Keep your Bibles open as we uh, come now to this story in Acts chapter 12, a story that I think is in many ways uh, one of, if not the most important stories in this book, this book of Acts, and indeed in some respects at least in the whole Bible. That's quite a claim. We've been seeing as we've been going through the book of Acts how relevant uh, this story that Luke is telling about how the good news of the kingdom of God is moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, how relevant that story is today. We live at a time when there's a great need for this message of grace and truth that connects across different racial um, boundaries and barriers to be heard. And we also live in a day when there's a great need for good news. Uh, We are desperate for a message that is uh, good and a message that has a gospel to it, good news. And so this story of the book of Acts that Luke is telling, we've seen over and over again, is very, very relevant. And as we saw last week, uh, God, through this message of the gospel, uh, defeats religion, religion in the sense of human-invented religion. And by defeating human-invented religion, legalism, judgmentalism, um, self-righteousness, By defeating that, he breaks down the barriers between different racial groups, Jews and Gentiles, now one as they unite around Christ. And so this story of the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth seems to be making steps of progress after steps of progress, continued movement forward. And yet now in this story, as I say, one of, if not the most in stories in the book of Acts and perhaps for our day, even in the Bible, at this moment, something pretty big begins to go wrong. And you see, that's so important for us to grasp. What do you do when things go wrong? When things are not as uh, you wish they were? And when you're a Christian and you have tried your best to love Jesus, but things have not turned out as you wanted when we live in this day and age when very few of us can really understand all that is going on in our world today and things rarely seem to be on the right track. What do you do when things go wrong? What we're going to see uh, this morning is uh, the nature of these things that were going wrong here, then what they did, and then what God did. Now what was going wrong here in uh, this day connects to a lot of the things that we're facing in our day. And in uh, basic short terms, it's related to this king, King Herod. Now, don't confuse this King Herod with uh, Herod the Great earlier in, in, the, Gos- in, in the Bible and in the Gospels. This is uh, Herod Agrippa I, known to history as Herod Agrippa I. And uh, he had been to Rome. He'd been trained in Rome. He was connected to the global powers at the time. And now he was back and he was king. Uh, But because he'd been in Rome and had returned uh, to his people, he was uh, very um, enthusiastic, very keen, um, determined to establish his credentials uh, with the Jewish religion, with Judaism. And so uh, we're told that uh, Herod the king uh, laid, verse 1, violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The church uh, was antithetical to Judaism at the time. And they wished that the church would cease to exist. And in order to please uh, them, King Herod Agrippa I began to lay violent hands on the church. This is a serious problem. Things are looking 
like they're going wrong. But what is more, he also then killed James, the brother of John, uh, with the sword. And uh, he was then going after the leaders, Apostle uh, James, strike uh, the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then when he saw that it pleased the, the Jews, those who are still holding on to the Judaistic religion, of course, many Jews ethnically were following the Messiah Christ, as many do today as well. But when he saw this pleased those who are following Judaism at the time, he went further and he proceeded to arrest Peter also, verse 3. See, things are not looking good. (laughs) Uh, He has uh, attacked uh, the church. He's uh, killed James, and now he's arrested Peter. His uh, poll numbers, uh, this political king who was trying to placate the Judeans in the time, his poll numbers, his improvement rates have gone through the roof after he had killed James. And he feels like he's on to a good thing. And so now he's going to grab Peter as well and arrest him. Because it's a a time of uh, religious uh, celebration, it's during the days of unleavened bread, and so he cannot kill Peter in those days. He arrests him, he puts him in prison, Uh, there are four squads of soldiers to guard him. It's a huge show. He's got James, now he's got Peter, and uh, there are these squads of soldiers marching around, uh, demonstrating to everyone who's uh, watching that... uh, This King Herod Agrippa I is on the side of the Judaistic religion. He's got Peter. And then he's going to bring him out once the feast is finished, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. And perhaps as he brings him to the people, they will once again shout, Crucify! Crucify! And the popularity of King Herod Agrippa is going through the roof. His poll numbers have never been seen before. And so he's keeping on attacking the church. And things, therefore, were looking like they're going pretty wrong. Now, it's very important that we face up to the truth that just because uh, we may be someone who follows God, just because uh, we're faithful in our giving to the church, just because uh, we come to the live stream like this, Uh, Just because uh, we uh, serve in the church, just because we love Jesus, it doesn't mean that we are immune from things going wrong. Uh, James, uh, the apostle, was killed. Peter, as the story unfolds, uh, was rescued. Why was James killed and Peter not? Uh, James hadn't done anything more wrong than Peter had done. This is in the mystery of the providence of God. And sometimes very faithful Christians who love Jesus face times of great difficulty. Sometimes very faithful churches that are doing everything right face times of great difficulty. Uh, The revealed things belong to us, but the secret things belong to God. Our God moves in a mysterious way. He plants his feet upon the waters and he rides on the storm. And sometimes a James is killed, even though a Peter is released. You see, we, we as the church in America, uh, we're not ready for when things go wrong. It's one of the great lessons of this whole season. 
is that the church in America has by and large been preaching a message over the last 20, 30 years that is a sales message, a marketing message, a positivity message. We are salesmen of a religious product competing with other religious stores for customers. And we always accent the positive. Well, that sounds fine. But what happens when things go wrong? Is it my fault? Was it James's fault that he was killed? Have I done something wrong? See, the Bible teaches that suffering and difficulty is as a result of the fall, but not always directly connected to my personal sin. Sometimes I suffer because I've done something wrong myself. If I uh, drive drunk and I get into a car crash, that's my fault. But other times, I suffer for no direct uh, connection to something that I myself have done. This is the whole lesson of the book of Job in the Old Testament. Job had not done anything wrong. This is what uh, Jesus teaches when uh, he's confronted by those who died at the Tower of Siloam. He says, were they any more sinners than you? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. We live in a broken world. Sometimes things go wrong. And we need a doctrine, therefore, a message, therefore, an understanding, therefore, that we live in a fallen world. Otherwise, when something does go wrong, we'll feel guilty. We'll wonder whether we have made a mistake. And we're either, if we're uh, neurotic, blame ourselves. Or if we're paranoid, we'll blame other people. We'll decide there's some great conspiracy out there. It must be someone's fault. Someone must have done this. If it's not me, it must be someone else or some movement, some hidden Illuminati out there. Because we don't understand. We live in a fallen world. This is a broken world. Sometimes things go wrong. Often things go wrong. It is only by the mercy of God that we do not experience difficulties like this season more frequently. But then you say, okay, but then what do you do when that happens? Well, here's what, what they did. And I want you, if you have uh, your Bible open, and I trust you do, whether it's on your phone or some other device or whether you've got a, a physical uh, Bible uh, of, uh, printed on paper, I'd encourage you to look at verse 5 and underline it, highlight it, emphasize it in some way or other. Verse 5 is a hugely important verse. And we're looking at what they did. And part of what they did was exemplary, and part of what they did was less than exemplary. But this is a wonderful example to us in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What a verse. Will you underline that? Will you emphasize it? Will you highlight it? Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by the church. Uh, your um, child is not doing as well as you would wish, but earnest prayer was made for him or her by the church. Your career is taken a turn in a way that you wish it had not, but earnest prayer. You're concerned about what's happening in the country, but earnest prayer. 
you're not sure what you're going to do in the next few months or so. You're, you're at a loss for future direction. But earnest prayer. You're locked at home with your parents and they're really annoying you. But earnest prayer. I wonder whether earnest prayer is the great missing ingredient of the church today. Over the last 10, 15 years or so, there's been a revival of interest in preaching from the Bible. There's been a revival of interest in theology. There's been a revival of interest in church health. We need a revival of interest in prayer. Ministers are called to the ministry of the word and prayer, both. Not just the word, not just just prayer, but the word and prayer. Earnest prayer, but earnest prayer. Why is it that we find this so difficult? Is it because we've bought into the materialism of the the world around us that it's hard for us to imagine that something that seems so uh, non-materialistic as sitting in a room on your own and closing your eyes and talking to someone that you cannot physically see, that we just find it so hard to believe that that can possibly make any difference? Is that why we've... We bought into the, the doctrine of materialism that you cannot see it. It does not exist as if, well, air you cannot see, but it certainly exists and makes a difference. Electricity you cannot see, but it certainly exists and makes a difference. Love you cannot see, but it exists and makes a difference. Have we bought into the doctrine of materialism where we just find it so hard to believe that getting on our knees, sitting in a chair, closing our eyes and talking to God can possibly make any difference? Is that why we find earnest prayer so, so hard? Is it because we don't truly believe the promises of God in the Bible? That uh, God promises that if we pray, he will answer those prayers. Are we uh, those who are less trusting in, in the truth of Scripture, in this regard at least, than we might like to think? Is, is that why? Is it perhaps because we have an imbalanced uh, theology of God's sovereignty? And so it is just hard for us theologically to believe that our prayers can make any difference. For if they did make any difference, how then is it that God is God? In what sense is God omnipotent? If my prayers will change what happens, surely then he's not omnipotent. And perhaps intellectually and therefore affectionately, always mind to heart and then to will, we, we, we don't pray because we have an imbalanced theology of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I wonder whether that's often the case. You know, the book of Philemon, Paul, writing there, says this. He says, I trust that through your prayers I'll be given back to you. Through your prayers. It would happen through your prayers. Or Paul writing uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. He says there that you, you must help. Must. <laughs> you must help in prayer. And then he is asking that, he will, um, uh, that prayers will be answered for him. Through the prayers of many. Through your prayers. Through the prayers of many. Or perhaps most startling of all in the book of James. James uh, just simply says, you have not 
because you ask not. In other words, the Bible teaches that the things that will not happen if we do not ask for them. That our prayers are a necessary ingredient for things to happen. And if we do not pray, things will not happen if you have not, because you ask not. Through your prayers, through the prayers of many, you have not because you ask not. You say to me, well, how is that possible if, if God is utterly sovereign? How is it possible that the earnest prayers of the church could make any difference? How is it possible that my prayers for my child, uh, for my church, for my country, for my political leaders, uh, for the salvation of uh, my friends, how is it possible that that would actually make any difference if, if God is sovereign? Are we not just sort of playing around, listen again to the scriptures? Through your prayers, through the prayers of many, you have not because you ask not. It's a, God's sovereignty and human responsibility is a constant balance. And the, the best way I've come across to think about it is, uh, is, is as follows. God in his sovereignty, because he's also a loving heavenly father, has set up the system whereby our prayers are the means by which he accomplishes his will so that therefore we are in relationship with him through prayers as he does what it is that he desires to do. He's like a father who wants to give a car to his son but he doesn't want to just write the check. He wants a relationship. He wants a conversation. The point of the car is not the car. The point of the car is the times they're going to spend together fixing it up in the garage. It is through your prayers. Our Father in heaven, we pray to him. Through the prayers of many. You have not because you ask not. And so it is exemplary. This verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God. Um, by the church. But there's a part of what they do in response to things going wrong that is not only less than exemplary, almost, almost a little comic. Uh, the story uh, carries on as, as in answer to their prayers, uh, God rescues uh, Peter. He's uh, an angel, stands next to him, verse 7, and a light shines in his cell and he's told to get up quickly and, and he's led out of, of jail and and he suddenly realizes he's not dreaming, verse 11, that God really has rescued him. And then he, he goes to where he knows the church will be meeting. And now, here's what's going on. The church is in earnest prayer. Right then, they're meeting to pray that Peter would be released. And they're praying in that room there. And as they're praying, uh, Peter's uh, voice is, uh, is, uh, is heard by uh, Rhoda. He's been knocking on the, on the door and uh, they don't want to be disturbed uh, from their prayer meeting. They're praying that Peter will be rescued. Oh, Lord, would you rescue Peter? They're earnestly praying. Oh, Lord, you please. You are sovereign. You can do anything. Would you rescue Peter? They're praying earnestly. There's a knock on the door and they send uh, Rhoda to go and see who it is because they're in earnest prayer. 
And Rhoda recognizes Peter's voice and is overjoyed and runs back and says, Peter's here. And what they say is, no, 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 cannot be possible. It's his angel. In other words, what that means is that they're saying it's his ghost. They, they, they think Peter is dead. <laughs> so right in the middle of their prayer meeting, where they're earnestly praying that Peter would rescue, be rescued, they don't actually believe it. Not really. For, for their only possible conclusion when Rhoda says, I've heard his voice, is that, no, it can't be Peter. He must be dead. Isn't it amazing? Exemplary and less than exemplary. It's so human. It's so like us. And isn't God gracious that he still answers their prayers, even though they're not quite managing to believe that he could? See, we misunderstand what it means to pray in faith. We think faith and uh, great faith is about the quantity of the amount of faith that we have. But no, the issue with faith is not the quantity of faith, but the location of faith. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about where you put your faith. Jesus taught that if you had faith as small as a grain of, uh, as, as a mustard seed, then you could say to this mountain, be moved and it would be moved. That's all that's required. Tiny, tiny, tiny faith, but in the right place, in God and his promises. They have tiny, tiny, tiny faith, but they are earnestly praying. It's not the quantity of your faith. It's the location of your faith. It's not how much faith you have. It's where you put your faith. Look at it like this. Imagine there's a ravine with a deep chasm uh, and a, a, a river at the bottom of it, cliff on either side, a huge gap and a long way down to the bottom. And this ravine, there are two bridges across uh, this gap. One is very rickety. Uh, it, uh, it looks um, unstable. It's been there a long time. There are some rotten planks. And the other bridge is uh, made of stone. It's very stable. It looks like it's been architecturally put together with excellence. And there are two men who want to get to the other side. One man is filled with faith. It's going to be easy, he says. It's not that far anyway. I, I can do it, no problem. I I for sure I can do it. And he, uh, in his great confidence, he goes to the rickety bridge and there's a bit of a wind blowing by now and the rain is coming down. He says to his friend, no problem, I can do it. I'll just run right across. He gets onto the rickety, unstable bridge and he starts to run and one of the, one of the slats in the, in the uh, bridge uh, gives way and he falls down to the bottom of the ravine. He had great faith, but faith in the wrong bridge. And the other uh, friend, uh, he says, well, I... I I'm really unsure about this. I, I'm not certain at all I can get to the other side. I don't think it's going to work. I don't, I don't like the look of that rain cloud over there. That wind, it's getting up pretty strong, but I've got to get to the other side. The rain's coming down. Well, I'm sure it's not going to work, but here goes nothing. He takes a step onto the bridge, the solid bridge, the reliable bridge, and he gets to the other side. He has tiny faith, but faith in the right place. And that's what they did. They had faith in the right place. And that's why their prayers were answered. Their earnest prayers. 
Well, what did God do? What did God do in this situation here? Well, of course, God answered their prayers for the rescue of Peter. But uh, he did more than that. If you look down with me at verse 24, here's another verse to underline in your, in your Bibles. Verse 5 and verse 24 are parallel verses in this, in this passage. Uh, you remember verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then verse 24, after, Herod, after God um, takes care of Herod, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That's what God is doing all the way through this story of the book of Acts from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and here. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's what God's agenda is always, that God's word would both increase and multiply. Increase and multiply. It's not more pious to wish for the day of small things. It's not more pious to um, be unsure whether increase or multiplication is a good thing. God's agenda is that the word of God would increase and multiply. And even Herod, even King Herod Agrippa I could not stand in the way. But the word of God increased and multiplied. But the other thing, of course, that uh, God did here is, uh, well, he, he judged Herod. He killed Herod. And Herod in this story uh, stands for the overweening pride that is so prevalent in our day. King Herod Agrippa I, Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, describes him in many ways as not as bad as his grandfather, uh, King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great was a truly malevolent, awful human being. He, on his deathbed, uh, commanded that his relatives uh, get uh, hundreds of, 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 uh, of other people into a stadium with soldiers around them so that when King Herod the Great died, they would be killed and people would mourn King Herod the Great's death because others, their friends and family members, had been killed at the same time. What an evil man. King Herod Agrippa I was not as evil as that, even though he was violently attacking the church. Uh, in many ways, he was pious. He was uh, in favor of the Judaistic religion. But King Herod Agrippa I had one great failing, and that is pride. There he is on his throne, uh, looking so impressive. He's wearing his royal robes. He delivered an oration to them. And the people are shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. This story is also recounted in Josephus. And God strikes him down because he doesn't give glory to God. He's eaten by worms and breathed his last. Some disease of the intestines, a parasite or something like we don't know exactly. He died uh, an awful, slow death. Uh, pride. What would you say was the greatest uh, danger facing uh, the church and the world today? Is it the global pandemic? Is it uh, 
the, the race tensions, the social justice needs that we need to lean into? What is the greatest danger facing Wheaton today? What is the greatest danger that faces our families today? And many of us here in, in Wheaton and connected to churches like College Church are strong and confident people. Uh, we have gifts and abilities. Uh, we have expertise. Uh, we are first rate at our chosen career. And perhaps we're tempted to pride. How do you know whether you're proud? Well, the Bible says uh, a man is tested by the pr- praise he receives. That was certainly true of Herod. He was praised to the rafters, a voice of a God, not of a man. And he failed the test. What are you being tested by? The amount of money in your bank account, perhaps that praises you. Um, the amount of degrees you've got from various universities, perhaps that praises you. And the amount of books you've written or published, perhaps that praises you. Uh, what other people say about you on social media, the amount of likes or follows you get, perhaps that praises you. D.L. Moody once said, no one will be sent away empty by God except those who are filled with themselves, so confident in their own abilities, so confident in their own opinions that they cannot possibly listen or receive something from God. Pride is a great danger. It's an invisibility cloak to all sorts of other sins, particularly religious pride, which it seems that King Agrippa I must have had. What do we do when we realize that perhaps we are, we are proud? Well, I suppose humor can help. Uh, it was... Uh, Uh, Martin Luther famously said that uh, when you're fighting off the devil, um, try humor. He's a proud devil. He cannot stand being laughed at. Humor can help. Cristiano Ronaldo, the great uh, uh, soccer player, is reported. I think it's an apocryphal story. I'm sure it is. Uh, But apocryphally, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo is said to have at uh, one time re- remarked, uh, God sent me to earth to show the world how to play soccer. And Lionel Messi, another great um, football player, another great soccer player, is said to have replied, I never send anybody. <laughs> pride competing with pr- pride. Uh, I suppose humor can help. Modesty, the call to modesty can be a good thing. Marshall, the great... Um, general during World War II who was the architect of what's known as the Marshall Plan that rescued Europe from decades of, of, of uh, poverty. Uh, a great man by anyone's estimates. Marshall wrote a letter to be opened on his deathbed about instructions about his funeral. He said, um, let the guest list only include uh, family. Uh, Let me have a funeral just like any other ordinary soldier. And above all, let it be done quietly. Yeah, modesty is, it it can certainly help. 
Thankfulness can help too. Uh, Archbishop of, Can- of Canterbury once said that, uh, a former Archbishop of Canterbury once said that thankfulness is a soil in which pride cannot easily grow. Oh Lord, I thank you for what you've done. I praise you. But perhaps most of all, Scripture. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God specifically told kings, like King Herod Agrippa I, and we may apply it to presidents of organizations or presidents of countries or people with celebrity status. God specifically said to kings, uh, write down the scriptures and read over it every day so that your heart might not be elevated above your brothers and sisters. That's the solution of solutions. Not just to read the Bible, but actually, if you're struggling with pride, get a notebook, get the promises of God, get the Psalms of the Bible, and write out the scriptures in your own hand over and over again so it lodges in your brain. And then next time when Someone praises you. Aren't you great at that? Aren't you brilliant? Aren't you the best thing ever? You can do what King Herod Agrippa I did not do, which is give God the glory. Our Lord God, we do pray that you'd help us to do that as a church and as individuals. We pray, Lord, that you would revive in us earnest prayer. And we pray, Lord, that the word of God would increase and multiply through uh, College Church. And, Lord, we do ask that you would uh, keep us centered upon you, uh, not puffed up and arrogant, but humbly trusting you to increase and multiply, earnestly praying that you would do according to your will, that you would rescue many people today. Lord, I earnestly pray that today you will rescue people from sin, from bondage, and release to the freedom and joy and love of humble, Christ-like dependence upon you. Oh, Lord, do it. Would you revive us again? In the name of Jesus, amen.